and we'll be in chapter 4, continuing in chapter 4. Obviously, we can't get through the woman in the well in one shot, and I think you guys are grateful for that. When I was in the Army, we had a, a guy named, uh, I'm going to call him Sergeant Barnes to protect the guilty. Sergeant Barnes loved what he would call Sweet Dr. P. He loved Dr. Pepper. He loved Dr. Pepper more than anything in the world. And he would bring it with him whenever we would go on long ruck marches. And he would drink his Sweet Dr. P everywhere he went. He was from East Texas. He was a, a scrawny little man. And he would always talk about Sweet Dr. P. Well, we found out that Sergeant Barnes could not keep up in the runs. He could not keep up in the ruck marches. Every time we went to the field, he would be sitting on the side of the road with his backpack, laying back like this. And whenever we tried to give him something to drink, he would be like, just give me some more of my sweet Dr. P. Right? And that was what he wanted. He wanted sweet Dr. P. And uh, Sergeant Barnes did not drink water. He did not drink water. He only drank Dr. Pepper. And we found this out after he had passed several stones and had several other issues resulting from his obsession with Dr. Pepper. And uh, eventually we had to intervene in his life and take away his sweet Dr. Fee. We had to cut it out from him by taking it away and only letting him have water um, when we were in the field, only have water as we got ready to go to the field. And so Sergeant Barnes would quench his thirst with Dr. Pepper, which only made him more thirsty, only more dehydrated. And this is pretty significant because it applies to our passage today, that many of us are thirsty. We are dying of thirst, and we're trying to drink some more of that sweet Dr. P instead of taking the living water that we need. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Now remember, Jesus has told the woman that he is the living water, that he will give the living water to her to drink. And so she said, okay, give me some of this so I don't get thirsty and have to come here to this well. And this is what he replies with. Jesus says, go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, 
who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Let's pray. Father, this passage is so rich, it's, it's hard to even uh, go through it without coming back in amazement. Lord, there's so many um, things to be treasured in our passage this morning. I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what your word says. Lord, I pray that you would uh, convict us where we need to change and that you would strengthen us for the task of changing. Lord, we ask for the living water of, of Christ Jesus, that the Spirit would quench our thirst and that we would find our satisfaction in the all-sufficient Christ. Lord, we ask these things uh, in your name, but we also would like to lift up um, those who are, are worshiping or have worshipped in China and the, uh, the martyrdom that is taking place there. We pray for those uh, who are uh, not allowed to worship you in spirit and truth because the, the government comes in and, and executes and destroys lives and churches. Lord, we pray for your people across this world uh, that we would be uh, faithful to you, even faithful to death. Lord, we don't take for granted that we have a comfortable building with uh, heat and, and air conditioning, comfortable chairs in which we can study. Lord, help us to take advantage of it. Let us use it to the greatest good possible. Lord, we pray for our community of Sierra Vista. Lord, there's so much devastation going on. We pray for the border and the sheriff and the border patrol that are working so hard to uh, protect us from um, drug smugglers and all the other uh, illegal activities that are happening there. Lord, we pray for your protection and your guidance today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we saw that, that people thirst. People are thirsty. There is innately built into every one of us a thirst for something. Many people try to solve that thirst by going to other things, right? We, we look at Netflix or we go to Facebook. We try to distract ourselves from what we need to do. We go to Dr. Pepper instead of drinking the living water, right? We, we get thirsty and we give ourselves these substitutes. Uh, we were made to worship, and so we start worshiping other things. That's the language we see in Scripture. And so Jesus sits at the side of this well, and this woman comes along, and he says, I am the thirst quencher. Come to me, and I will give you this living water. I will quench your thirst. And we saw that he does that through three ways. Does anybody remember the three ways? Well, the first is that he comes and he is in human form, right? He gets tired. He is exhausted. So Jesus is tired. He's sitting at the well, and now he has to do some counseling, some well-side counseling, um, some evangelism with this woman. And so Jesus exhausted means that we also know that we can be tired, and he understands. We have a God who is able to sympathize with us in every way. And then we see that he says it's a gift from above. You must be born again. This, the theme from chapter 3 is continuing. You must be converted. You are going to thirst and continue to go after the wrong thing if you are unconverted. If you are converted, you will have within you the ability to now get the living water, but a lot of times we thirst after things we shouldn't still because we have this fleshly nature. And then finally he says, I am the living water. Come to me and you will get it. He is, in fact, he gives himself up for us. And so in verse 14, it says, but whoever drinks 
from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for him in, for, uh, in him for eternal life. And so Jesus shows that he is the thirst quencher. And so we see today something a little different. I'm actually carrying on. There's three more things that Jesus does, but I want to change how I explain it. So instead of saying that Jesus quenches our thirst, I'm going to say he's going to reveal. Jesus is revealing three things in our passage this morning. And the first thing he does is he reveals the heart. Jesus conducts open heart surgery on our well lady, um, the woman at the well. And so he gets into the operating room. So verse uh, 16, he says, go call your husband. Man, can you imagine how she must be feeling right now? So she kind of had the upper hand, right? She's the one with the bucket. Jesus didn't have a bucket. So now she was like, I got the, all the water. And you're over here talking about this living water, but I don't see a bucket. And so now she has her bucket. And he says, go get your husband. And she knows that she has a past. Does anybody in this room have a past? Do anybody here have some things that they're kind of embarrassed about? that they wouldn't want the, uh, the living God to point out to them in conversation. She's had five husbands. So Jesus, being God, uncovers her sin in verse 16. He says, go call your husband and then come back here. Now, in our politically correct culture, we would say to Jesus, don't make her so uncomfortable, right? Let's not, don't bring up the past, Jesus. There are better ways to handle this. Uh, maybe just talk about her, how much you love her, how much you care about her. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? And this has implications for how we do evangelism. This has implications for how we do counseling, how we treat other people in our lives. We cannot let them keep drinking Dr. Pepper instead of drinking water. We have to reveal that Dr. Pepper is a dehydrator. We have to reveal that sin is a problem. And so that's what Jesus does. He doesn't offer her cheap grace. He confronts her sin. So that's the first thing. Uh, just like a doctor wouldn't give you a bunch of pills and not tell you what's wrong with you. You go into the operating room or the, the doctor's office and he says, hey, you have cancer. Take these pills and we got this, tr this treatment plan. But can you imagine if he had just said, okay, take these pills, do this treatment plan. I don't know. You don't know what's going on with you. We're just going to give you this medicine. You're not going to appreciate the medicine. You probably won't even take the pills until you find out, no, you have cancer. You're going to die. Take these pills, right? Jesus does that. He, if he uh, diagnoses the problem and he explains it. So he sets up this conversation to get to the root issue of this woman. He wants to bring out her sin. Man, that's an uncomfortable situation, bringing out someone's sin. No one likes to be confronted with their sin. In fact, don't we like to blame the other person? Well, I know you're talking about me, but what about you, right? You, you, you did this. Don't talk to me about my sin. You have a log in your eye. What is the atheist's favorite Bible verse? Does anybody know? Judge not lest you be judged. Everybody knows that. They love that one. They don't love anything else, but they'll love that one. And why is that? Because they don't want to be confronted with their own sinfulness. And so her response in verse 17 is super terse, very tense. She goes, I don't have a husband. 
All these other times, she's been talking a lot. She says a lot of words, right? Well, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get some water? You don't have a bucket, Jesus. Now she goes, I don't have a husband, right? She's embarrassed for good reason. She's embarrassed. And then Jesus says, you have had five husbands. Man, someone keeping a list here. You, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. Now, we don't know if she's a widow five times over. We don't know if she's been divorced and is now living with a man. But we know that she's an outcast. We know that she is um, not considered honorable in this environment. That's why she's going to the well during the heat of the day. She's ashamed. Uh, it's likely that she's been divorced a bunch of times over. Maybe there's a combination. Um, and remember this. If you were a woman at that time, if you did not have a man to take care of you, you would struggle. It would be hard. You'd have to basically beg for things. Uh, think about the Middle East right now where women aren't even allowed to drive cars. How would you get to the grocery store to get groceries for your family if no one is going to drive you, right? You have to have a brother or a husband or a dad to take you where you need to go. And so in the same way, she couldn't really earn a living very well. So it makes sense, doesn't it, from a practical standpoint, why she would find a man to care for her. And so that's what she has. She has a man that's, that's caring for her, but she's not married. And so Jesus brings this out. I want you to think about how embarrassed she is. She can't even go to the well when the other women go to the well. You want to go to the well during the cool of the day. We all in Arizona know what it's like to get hot. If it, the middle of the day is not a great time to go to the well and drag a bucket of water miles with you or however far. And so she goes during the heat of the day because she's embarrassed to go during the cool of the day. Man, think about that in your own work environment. Those of you who are working still. Uh, in the Army, it was the smoke pit, right? You don't want to hang out with the guys at the smoke pit because you're embarrassed about something that's happened. Or maybe at, at your work, it's a coffee, um, coffee lounge or a coffee spot or the break room. You don't want to hang out in the teacher's break room or at the coffee pot because you're embarrassed because people look at you and talk behind your back. And that's what this woman has experienced. She's experienced shame and embarrassment, and she's, not, she's an outcast. Um, and Jesus doesn't just bring her comfort that's cheap. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay. You do you, boo-boo, right? He doesn't say, oh, you know, woman power, power to the woman, right? He doesn't do any of that. He says, you have this problem. He brings out her personal failures. He opens up the wound. He brings out the painful hurt. You know, maybe she's going to be a little defensive and even offended. He opens this up. So when God seeks to make a change in someone, he brings conviction of sin. When God seeks to make a change in you, he's going to bring conviction of sin. Sin is the treasuring of something other than God. It's liking Dr. P more than drinking water. It's treasuring something other than God. It's idolatry. God always commands a turning from idols. We don't add Jesus to whatever it is that we're doing. So we can't miss this in our evangelism. When you go to share Christ with your neighbors and your friends, Jesus is not by addition, but by subtraction. Jesus is not by addition, but by subtraction. Faith in Jesus Christ is not added to what we already have. 
It is a removal of everything else but Christ. It is a call to die to yourself. Has anyone ever told you that that's what it means to be a Christian? To be a follower of Jesus means to die to yourself? That's a heavy calling, isn't it? It means that we have to get rid of these other things. How we go about it is important. Now, you don't just talk, go up to someone and start calling them names, right? If Jesus started calling this woman at the well a bunch of names and, and beating her up about her past, I don't think it would have gone over so well. But Jesus is wise as he deals with this woman at the well. He's, he does it in a compassionate way because he says, you know, it's true. What you have said is true. You don't have a husband. You've had five. He's like, but, but he, he kind of compliments her a little bit and says, it is true. You are, what you said is right. So he doesn't call them names, but he recognizes that we are in bondage. And so when you evangelize to someone else, recognize that they are in bondage to something, something other than Christ. They love something more than Jesus. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pride. It could be greed. It could be money. It could be comfort. Uh, you guys know that's my biggest idol. I tell you about it all the time. Comfort is an idol to me. I love to be comfortable. And so that's a priority. And I have to die to myself daily when I head home because the world doesn't serve me, right? I have to serve my, my family. And so we have to die to ourselves. So Jesus reveals the heart by exposing sin. He reveals the heart by exposing sin. And then he begins to reveal true worship. So Jesus has exposed this woman's sin. In verse 17, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then verse 19, she begins. And she says, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. So think about this. Jesus has just exposed this woman's heart, her sin. He has diagnosed her. And her response is interesting. Now, many people will take this and say she's deflecting, right? If you want to derail a conversation, ask somebody about end times. When is Jesus going to come back, right? Because that's going to deflect the whole situation. Or talk about plagues and um, talk about Daniel or the book of Revelation. When will the Lord return? Man, that's a great way to get distracted from your sin, isn't it? Yeah, I may be living in sin or neglecting my responsibilities, but I could tell you about the book of Revelation like nobody's business. I could tell you everything. I know I have a secret system figured out. But the reality is, that's not. I don't think that's what she's doing. Now, that's what a lot of people think she might be doing. I don't think that's what it is. Because look at this. She is has now has sin that has been revealed that she has to atone for, right? She has to make it right. And so she's asking a practical question here. She's practical. She goes, what is the proper way to worship? What do I do with my guilt? It's very... So in verse 19, she says that you are a prophet. And then 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. When we go to worship, what we're doing is we're bringing to God our sin and getting forgiveness. That's part of our worship. We're turning away from our idols. And that's what she is doing here. So she is getting advice from this prophet about how do we deal with guilt. 
Now, many people in this room have guilt. I know it for a fact, mainly because you're human, and human beings accrue guilt. And we have guilt that is um, objective. We have guilt before God. And then we have subjective guilt or guilt of feeling. We feel guilty. Now, the psychologist will tell you there's no such thing as guilt. Don't think about it. Forget about it. You're fine. You're good the way you are. Don't worry about it. But that's not what we have here. Or our culture today has really shifted. It's interesting. We have turned into an honor-shame culture. Have you noticed that? Cancel culture is the big thing. So if you say something bad or wrong 10 years, 20 years ago, and they, it comes to light, they want you to be eliminated. You have to step down from everything you're doing and get away from society. You are an outcast now. There's no redemption. Even when they apologize, they're like, that's not good enough. That's just not good enough. You said sorry, not good enough. Right? And so what do you do with the guilt? Well, Jesus says we can get rid of guilt by coming to him. Coming to Christ. So if you feel guilty right now, if you have a past, if you've had five husbands and you're living with the one that is not your husband right now, you can come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God exposes our sin. Our guilt is uncovered. And then God covers us with the blood of Christ. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They eat the forbidden fruit. What do they do after they eat the forbidden fruit? They, buy, they go to the market and get some fig leaves, cover themselves up. Our culture today is just making more extravagant fig leaves to cover up our guilt and our shame. Uh, I, I like to say we bedazzle our fig leaves, right? We use that little machine to bedazzle them like little kids do, and we put all these jewelry to distract from our shame and our embarrassment. And so we have bedazzled our fig leaves, but Jesus is saying, get rid of that. Strip yourself naked before me. Be bare and open in front of me. And you will wear the blood of Christ instead. So you don't have to be ashamed and you don't have to have guilt when you come to Christ because he died for your sins. He covers you with his own garments. God has provided a way to deal with guilt. Now, we have verse 19 through 20 where she talks about worship. Where do we go to worship? And then Jesus responds in 21 through 23. Now, his response is given in three parts. He announces the obsolete nature of both temple and mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is what she was talking about, as places for worship. And then he affirms that salvation comes from the Jews or springs from the Jews. And then he explains the nature of true worship and settles the conflict between where to worship. So her... The, the conflict with the Jews and the Samaritans are where do we go to worship? The Samaritans do not go to the temple. They are not welcome at the Jewish temple. They're not considered part of the Jewish family, even though they have a heritage. They have to worship at this Mount Gerizim. And so Jesus begins in verse 21 with this. Jesus told her, believe me, woman. Now, I just want to make a quick note. When he says woman, it's kind of like saying ma'am. He's not being disrespectful. He's just giving her a polite thing. Uh, he says, believe me, woman, I lost my place. Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The hour is coming. Now, when John says the hour is coming, he is referring to the cross. Nine times out of ten, probably almost 100% of the time, when he says the hour is near or the hour is coming, he's always referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ 
dying on this cross. And so he says the hour is coming when we will worship not at this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 22, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. So the first statement was, it doesn't matter the mountain or a big deal. That's not going to be important. And then he goes on in verse 22 and he says that he is talking about where Samaritans do not worship or they worship what they don't know. He is saying, he's affirming the uh, theology of the Old Testament. Jesus is not anti-Jew. He is affirming the Old Testament. He says that you guys who only hold to the first five books are missing the point. You are not worship, you're worshiping in ignorance. You're not worshiping the true God. And so he says salvation springs from the Jews because Jesus is a Jew. So he says the object of the Samaritans' worship is really unknown to them. They're not worshiping in truth. Um, not that they're not sincere, just that they don't know God. They don't know God in a true sense. And then verse 23, he says, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. So he's pointing to this cross. He's foreshadowing the truth of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to die. This is the main point of the discourse. The debate is about to be obsolete. Jesus says the debate is about to be over. It will be decided on the cross. We could... What could be greater than the temple at Jerusalem? What could be greater than the Mount Gerizim? Christ Himself. Christ Himself dying for them. Jesus is pointing to where true worship needs to be directed. Not only that, but when and now, He says. It's not just where, but when, now. Worship Me. That's the point of this passage. Christ. Christ lifted up. So true worship needs to be directed to Jesus. You worship God, not through the temple, not through the mountain, but through Jesus. And that's what he is, is making this point. He says, more than that, how do you know who true worshipers of God the Father is? Well, he explains that. He says, in spirit and in truth. Go ahead and look at your verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, your Bible may have a capitalized spirit or a lowercase spirit. At the very end of 24, do you have a capital? Go ahead and raise your hand if you have a capital spirit. Let's see what we got in our Bibles. Capitals. How many have lowercase spirits? Okay. So what has happened is, in the Greek New Testament, we don't have lowercase and uppercase. It's all one case. And they're all jammed together. Remember, we had talked about it, and I should probably get a picture someday and show you. But what, is, what, has to, what we have to do then is determine, is he talking about the Holy Spirit, or is he talking about the Spirit inside of you? Do you worship by your Spirit inside of you, or do you worship by the Holy Spirit? And I think it's the Holy Spirit that's in mind here, and I'm going to explain why. So, the reason I think it is, is I have three reasons. First, at the beginning of 24, it says, God is Spirit. 
Why would he divorce that and say something about a lowercase spirit inside of you? All right, so that's just the first point. Um, it would be strange for him to shift to the internal part of man. The second reason is in the context of John 3, now here in 4, he, John has been revealing the Holy Spirit. He's been talking about the Holy Spirit over and over again. You must be born from above. The Spirit goes where it pleases. The wind blows. We don't know where it is. And so the Spirit is moving. And then last week I said the, the, the fountain of living waters, Jesus says, is the Holy Spirit. So this fountain that comes up inside of you is the Holy Spirit. So I think in the context, this looks like the Holy Spirit. The third reason is, in John, the Holy Spirit is always linked with truth. We see it over and over again. Whenever he mentions the Spirit, he talks about truth, the Spirit of truth. Uh, chapter 14, verse 17, chapter 15, 26, and chapter 16, 13, all talk about the Spirit and truth. So whenever those two are together, nine times out of ten, it's the Holy Spirit. So that's what I think is going on here. So I think John and Jesus here in particular is saying that this Holy Spirit is what points to Jesus. And so that's why when we worship, we worship in the Holy Spirit and truth. So God is a spirit, which means he is not corporal. He doesn't have a body. Uh, he doesn't have a body. That means we don't have to go to a place to worship him. Uh, he is unknowable. If something is other than what we have here, it would be up to that other thing, for God has revealed himself to us. Obviously, through the word, right? In the beginning, God created. It's a the depiction of God speaking. And then John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the revelation of God. And so he is saying, you must know him. He has to reveal himself, which is why we have the Word. That Jesus who became flesh for us. <clears throat> Not only that, this God, who is a spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. There's only one way to worship God, not two. Right? We don't worship Him in truth only, and we don't worship Him in spirit only. We worship Him in spirit and truth. These are two things that have to go together. So this is important. We can't miss this. Worship is God-centered, gifted by the Holy Spirit, with true knowledge and conformity to the Word made flesh through the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. When we worship God, it has to be through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to worship God. There is no other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. And the worshipers that God seeks are those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Out of the abundance of their eternal life, they enjoy in the Spirit on the basis of Christ. They, they treasure God above all things through Jesus Christ, who is the truth, in the Spirit, which is fullness of joy. Remember, the Spirit gives us fruit. What is one of the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. So there is this concept here that we're trying to, I'm trying to get to, is the way to worship God is through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. It is by the Spirit. Remember in Revelation 21, 22, it says there is no temple because the, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus Christ is the place you go to deal with your sin. 
When you have sin in your life, you go to Christ. He is the sufficient. You know, we need more people to be full of the Word of God. That is the truth. So not mindless activity or pure emotions, but truth as it is laid out in the Word. That's the emphasis here. So worship involves thinking. Never disconnect your brain. There's a, there was an old book that says, don't check your brains at the door. And it used to be an apologetic book about Christianity. Don't check your brains at the door. We, we do this in a thinking way. We are thinking interaction with the truth. So how can we summarize this? Uh, maybe something like this. True worship of God the Father happens in accordance with what God has revealed about himself by the strength of the Spirit, of his Spirit. Does that make sense? That means that true worship does not take place when we do not worship in accordance with what he has revealed about himself. So if you ever want to analyze something, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you ever wanted to analyze something, you can talk about what it is and what it is not. So true worship is in spirit and truth. So what would be the opposite of true worship? How could we say that true worship is not happening? Well, when it's not truthful when we don't know true things about God, when we talk about false things about God. Um, there's a popular movement in America today where we think about God the way we want to think about him, right? We have a white Jesus and a black Jesus. We have a Korean Jesus and a, a Chinese Jesus, right? We make God into our own image. When we do that, we're not worshiping in truth, right? A lot of people will say, well, my God wouldn't do it that way. Well, what does scripture say? How do we know who God is? So we worship in the truth, in the truth. But also, we don't want dead orthodoxy, do we? We need to have the Spirit. It needs to be in the Spirit. So every failure to worship God happens because people have wrong thoughts about God. Think about Cain and his offering of the sacrifice in, um, at the beginning. He offered a sacrifice of plants, that's why God's not a vegetarian. And he offered a sacrifice of plants, and God rejected it because he did not worship in truth. Or what about this guy, these two guys, Nadab and Abihu? Have you heard about them? They offered strange fire to God. They offered unauthorized worship to him, and God killed them for it. Or what about Uzziah who grabbed the ark when it was falling? God struck him dead because we have to worship in truth. We have to worship God as he says he is, not how we want him to be. And so the Israelites in the wilderness chose to worship a golden bull saying that represented God. And the list goes on. So when the church departs from God's revealed will in Scripture and tries to be innovative in our means of worship or our methods, not only does our, our worship suffer, but moral standards decline. When we try to do things with our own strength, our own way, maybe even with a good motive, moral standards decline, and God will write Ichabod on the mantle of the church that abandons his word. So, I'm not going to keep going. I have, we're running out of time. I'm actually out of time. and I have a whole last uh, point. So, remember, these two words have to be together. So God revealed the heart, he revealed true worship, and now he reveals himself. We have to get through this because, um, man, we've got to finish up John chapter 4, otherwise we'll be here for weeks. 
The woman says she believes that there will be a Messiah, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Man, what is so amazing about this is that Jesus reveals who he is to a Samaritan woman. A woman who has had many husbands. A woman who is living with her boyfriend. He reveals that he is the Messiah to her. But he did not reveal himself to the Jews yet. Think about that. Pretty powerful that Jesus has compassion on those who are lost. Then this woman, of course, runs into town and gathers them to tell them about Jesus. And the disciples who went to get sandwiches came back without anybody, which is kind of fascinating to me. But that's, that's next week's problem. So let's sum up this entire discourse with the words, I am He. He says that He is the Messiah, the one that we need. So people have a great need, right? We're sucking down Dr. Pepper in the way that we chase after the things of this world. Maybe we think we need love and we're looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Maybe we think we need entertainment and we're filling our mind with garbage from the internet. Maybe we think we need this or we need that. So we're dying inside. You are dying of thirst and you're filling yourself up with these things that won't satiate you, things that won't quench your thirst. And I'm, I'm guilty as you, so don't think that I'm lecturing you and pointing your sins out. Remember, if I point my finger... I have four other fingers pointing back at me, right? I am primarily guilty. I fill my mind with things that are cotton candy when I should be eating the meat from the Word. And we have to do this. So we want to worship like God commands in spirit and truth. I'm going to end um, soon, but I want to talk to you about this hymn, Amazing Grace. The author of Amazing Grace is John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He made his business in capturing people and bringing them to England. He captured or he bought the slaves from Africa and brought them to England. He would rape the slaves that he captured on the ship. He would have parties with his men. He would get drunk and then try to get others drunk and they would have these parties. He was a wicked, wicked man. One of the most vile men that I think I've ever read about. And he is open and honest about this. And one day, their ship is about to sink. And as he is pumping for water, he cries out. The first time he says a non-blasphemous thing, he cries out to the Lord for help. And he's saved. God saves him. A wretch like him, God saves. And so this wicked man, evil man, is saved by the grace of the Lord. He said he would get drunk just to get other people drunk. He wanted to bring people on the broad way. He wanted to bring them away from the narrow path. That was his goal. And so he talks about grace a lot because he was shown so much grace in his own life. And he didn't think of grace as a substance or as a thing. He says grace is Jesus Christ. Grace is the action of Christ redeeming sinners like you and me. Grace is the action of Jesus Christ redeeming a, sin, a sinner like this woman at the well. No one is too far gone for the grace of Jesus Christ. You may have rejected Him your whole life, and He still wants you to come to Him, to quench your thirst now. You may be living 
in sin right this moment. You may be having evil thoughts in your head as we speak. Turn to Christ now. Now is the chance. Unbeliever, do you thirst? Has this world left you empty? Have you worshipped at every altar that you could find and have been left with nothing? Are you sitting at the side of the well getting more water from the world because it has left you thirsty once again? I'm asking you this. Come, dip the water with the bucket of faith into the well of Christ. Bring your bucket of faith. Dip it into Christ. Drink from this living water. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Turn to Him today. Christian, are you weary? Are you bound up in sin? Are you tired? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Christ is all satisfying. He is all sufficient for your needs. Seek more of Christ. He will quench your thirst. He will do it. It may take a while. You may have many, many hours of crying out to Him. You may have a long way to go, but ask for the living water to bubble up inside of you like a fountain. You can come to Him daily. In fact, we are called to seek Him while He may be found. Seek Christ today. Seek Christ in your darkest moments. He will satisfy. He will fill you. No matter how wicked you are, Christ is all we need. Seek Him and we will find Him. Now, I, I, I want to say this. This is true for me. This is so true for me. I thirst. And I try to quench my thirst with that sweet Dr. Pepper. I do. I love Dr. Pepper too, so it kind of works really well. I drink zeros now because I'm getting fat. I, I seek that sweet Dr. Pepper, don't I? Are you, are you drinking salt water? Are you drinking salt water and hoping that it will fill you? Are you drinking from the well of this world? You need to confess it to the Lord. Take it to Him and say, Lord, I've been drinking the wrong thing. I've been drinking alcohol. I've been doing drugs. I have been watching Netflix movies until late in the night, hoping to satisfy the deep longings of my heart. I've been searching after that one woman that's going to make everything right. I've been looking for that perfect family, that perfect home, whatever it is. Confess that to the Lord. Take it to Him. Seek Him while He may be found, and He will quench your thirst. And seeing this amazing grace that we have in Christ. Father, as we lift up our, our cries to you, Lord, we have so many in this room that are like the woman at the well, with a sinful past, full of, full of evil. We have sought from the cisterns, the broken cisterns of this world, and our well is run dry. We are thirsty and parched. Christ, in your word, you, you have said that if we come to Jesus, he will in no wise cast out. You will not cast us away. You will not throw us away like a piece of garbage, like society will. Uh, like fame or fortune will do at the end. All that is perishing, but you are imperishable. 
Lord, we ask to, that we could come to the, the fountain of living water once more today, that we would see in your word, your word is truth, and we would drink deeply from the word, that our hearts would be restored, that we would reject the lesser drinks, that we would get rid of that Dr. Pepper that is so sweet to the mouth but destroys the insides, and we return to the living water. Father, we ask these things for each and every person in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.